0: Welcome to The Ingredient Panel, the podcast where we talk about what's in your food, why it's in your food, and why that matters. Each week, a food scientist, a chef, and a product developer will tackle a different ingredient or food topic from the perspective of food science, product development, and commercialization. I'm Lindsay Herman, VP of Product Development at Factory LLC, and your host this week. I'm joined by co-host, Chef Jill Hauk.
1: Hi, I'm Jill Hauk corporate research and development chef for Olem Food Ingredients.
2: And food scientist Karen Watson. Hi, I'm Karen Watson, Director of Sales and Technical Innovation at New Life Market.
0: Between the three of us, we have over 50 years of experience in the food industry with a focus on healthy living and special diets. This week, we're talking fat, why it's in your food, why you probably don't want to take it out of your food, and why that matters. Fat and the nutritional research surrounding it has come full circle over the last 80 years. In the early 20th century, it was a major component of the American diet. Then in the 1940s, a study determined that dietary fat was a major culprit for increasing rates of heart disease. Despite decreases in the consumption of fat, heart disease rates continued to climb. But thanks to continued nutritional research, we now know that fat alone is not to blame, and that it's an essential part of our diets, though the types and amount of fat to consume is still a hotly debated topic. And for product developers, whither goes fat,
2: so go we. Yes, let's talk fat and how complicated it's been over the years. It kind of reminds me of that Katy Perry song. It's hot, then it's cold. It's yes, then it's no. It's in, then it's out. And it's up and down. And we just have to follow suit.
1: Like yeah, there's kiss a girl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's there's been a lot of changes in how products are formulated over I mean, just look over the last 35 years, it's been crazy.
2: I feel like over the last five years or so, especially with the huge increase in the keto diet, just development and the amount of fat that you use has really changed. I remember early in my career, you know, everything was very focused on hitting a specific calorie goal. And so using fat did not help you meet your calorie goal. And so even if you weren't trying to avoid fat altogether, you did because it didn't help you get to the end nutrition you were trying to hit in your product. Sure. Right. Calories were seen
0: as the end all be all. And people believe that if they counted calories, it didn't matter what kind of calorie it was, they were gonna lose weight.
1: Right. And if in some basic math for those of you who, you know, are not as familiar with where calories are in food. If you take a look at a gram of fat, there are 9 calories in a gram of fat versus 4 calories in a gram of protein or 4 calories in a gram of carbohydrates. And so very simplistically, reducing fat is going to reduce overall calories, but of course with unintended consequences
0: absolutely i mean, it, it's interesting to me because i started cooking in the 1990s and one of our first lessons you know they're teaching you about how to cook and what what gives flavor and this is the kind of salt we use and this is when we use pepper and when they would talk about fat they would say fat equals flavor but we're
1: not supposed to say that anymore because
0: <laughs> fat was seen as the villain
1: Right. I mean, you had this tradition of French chefs who would build entire repertoires around cream and butter. And then as cooks coming up in the 90s, you realized you had to start doing things like following uh, leaner California cuisines where you're putting in broths, you're putting in extra virgin olive oil, which is still a fat, by the way, but just seem to be stepping away from that tradition.
0: Absolutely. And part of that was just a response to a number of things that had happened. We had a lot of studies. Heart disease obviously was a major concern for doctors and nutritionists. And so how data was taken and interpreted had a deep and lasting effect
2: upon the recommendations that the USDA made to Americans. Yeah. And the USDA didn't necessarily say all fat was bad. They really targeted saturated fat and cholesterol. And so you saw a real reduction in the use of saturated fats and animal fats. So butter, coconut oil, anything that's solid at room temperature is considered a saturated fat. And so then you saw increased use in things like canola oil, olive oil, and just general vegetable oils and Crisco which ironically was a trans fat they've had to reformulate now because trans fats are not no longer something that are allowed in the American diet for because they had serious health consequences and so it's just interesting as a person looking at it historically how quite honestly bad some of the science was in these recommendations to the the public and how this and, really affected the types of fats used in products.
0: So let's talk a little about saturated versus uh, unsaturated
2: fats, Karen. Yeah. So it's it simply put, saturated is considered solid at room t- temperature. Unsaturated is considered liquid at room temperature. And then you kind of have these engineered fats in between. Um, so you can fractionate an oil. So Liquid coconut oil is very popular on the market today. That's actually, um, there's multiple different types of fat within coconut oil, and they can separate them by temperature. So there's actually some saturated fats and some unsaturated fats in coconut oil. So it's definitely a lot more complex than just one versus the other. And then you got into the whole... Um, production of trans fats, which was basically taking a unsaturated fat. And modifying it in a way that made it solid at room temperature.
0: And there is an advantage to saturated fat, and that is it doesn't oxidize easily because the there's a carbon double bond with mono and polyunsaturated fats. Um, mono has one and poly has multiple, and they are easily oxidized. They're pretty unstable. So if you have a saturated fat, it would have better shelf life. And that's why a lot of companies were choosing to use those fats because not only did you they have excellent functional properties in specific applications, but they had better shelf life.
1: They were also way easier to transport because it mm-hmm. brought it back to like a solid state. So if you're bringing in yeah. fryer oil, For a food service operation or for a large manufacturing operation, you're not bringing in these unstable jugs of liquid. You have something that is somewhat rigid and can be transported in a lot lighter materials. So in a lot of ways, this was considered the silver bullet for the food industry.
2: Right. And in addition to that, when you put it in things like pastries or cookies or like our favorite cookie to dunk into milk, it gives that really short, flaky texture and mimics butter a lot better. And, you know, all of these companies have had to now formulate these products out, which has been pretty difficult.
0: Yeah, it explains why a lot of
2: your favorite products don't taste the same. And yeah, and this is just kind of one of those instances where you have to accept the changes even if you can't match exactly the way things were.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's a really challenging piece in product development because usually when we have an ingredient change, we're asked to match what the consumer expectation was based on what they've experienced, which is the product as it's been for the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 Mm -hmm. years, whatever it is. And when there are these sweeping changes in conventional wisdom and knowledge, you can't necessarily find that solution right away. Sometimes the technology isn't
2: there. Yeah. And, you know, as we talk about trans fats, that's how we know them as food scientists. But if you ever looked at your food label, you would see partially hydrogenated vegetable oil. That is the way that it was labeled. And you'll still see fully hydrogenated on food, some food packaging. And that basically takes the reaction all the way to the place where there's no more trans fats. Um, and trans is really just talks about the direction that the saturated bond occurred. And if you fully saturate, then you take away that trans fat. Yes.
0: And a lot of the modern hydrogenated fats, while there is some trans fat, it's so low that it is not required to be labeled on packages. Because if you're below 0.5, uh, is it percent? Then you don't need to declare it. It shows up as zero. So it's interesting. In 2010, a lot of things changed. There was this giant meta-analysis of all of these heart studies, and they looked at them to try to see was there in fact definitive proof that consuming fat led to heart disease. And what they found was no. Very few of the studies out there actually showed a definitive link. And suddenly the way we began to perceive fat changed because it was okay to eat butter again and maybe to add a little lard to your diet or tallow. Hipsters already had brought these back into their diets. Butter, especially grass-fed butter, was seen as Uh, ghee. Oh, ghee. Absolutely. They started to get added into everything. If you were going to restaurants in the mid-late 2000s, you would have seen uh, tallow fried French fries on a
1: lot of menus in the hipper restaurants around town. If you come so- to my house, I will pop you popcorn in lamb fat. Ooh. And it is a fact that that is the most delicious popcorn you could ever eat.
2: It is the most saturated fat, you know. <laughs> my husband, <laughs> my husband swears by actually cooking uh, French fries and duck fat. Yes, oh, yeah. great. <laughs> That's great. There was a yeah, restaurant
1: in Chicago that like made its bones based on duck fat fries. Every Friday, duck fat fries
2: at hot dogs. Are do they still do that? I'm I'm down. I'm They're out of business. Chicago, They're, oh, yeah. No. yeah. 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 Right. Well But we can dream talk yeah, about so, it and imagine. So we're talking it. a lot about animal fats here, but um, you know, kind of the mid um, 2010s is when the paleo diet really popped. And then that started looking at the way your fat was processed. And, you know, you could have olive oil, but it needed to be cold pressed olive oil. It couldn't just be extra virgin because that's the most natural way to process it. And because sure, a canoe oil man would have
1: like gotten the olives and squished them between two stones. Right. And that's the mm-hmm. whole concept behind can
2: <laughs> But yeah, and uh I would say coconut oil's popularity really started to spike around that time as well. Absolutely, and, and, absolutely. Yeah, and that's an interesting one to work with as a product developer. Um, you know, mm-hmm. some some clients really wanted you to try to use virgin coconut oil, which is a kind of unstable if you're going to have it in a food product for a long period of time. It's it's going to go rancid, and then and you, why is that? So there's a lot of kind of free fatty acids as well as some other chemical compounds, um, since you're not refining the oil, which basically means heating it up and moving all impurities, um, you'll start to get off flavors. And one of the things to remember about coconut oil is it's the base for a lot of natural soaps. And I actually have had projects where um, a customer came to us and said, what's this off flavor in our product? Mm. What? Why does this taste soapy? And I mean, it's because the coconut oil in the product was turning to soap. Um, So it's not always the most stable thing to use, even though there's really this health halo around it for a lot of consumers.
1: And in order to stabilize that, you would need to put in ingredients that the customer wouldn't want anyway or thinks that they wouldn't want. Mm -hmm. So if you're putting in like tocopherol, they're going to look at that and say, what is this? I have no desire to have this in what I'm eating.
2: Yeah, we'll enter the rosemary extract um, as Hmm. a very popular natural antioxidant.
0: Right. And rosemary, thyme, oregano, they all are, have powerful antioxidants, but they also have flavor and aroma that mm-hmm. are not completely removed in the process of refining. So uh, while they do help extend shelf life, they don't extend it as long as the artificial preservatives do. So- mm-hmm. um it's they get used up faster in the process of preventing oxidation of the fats, and oxidative rancidity is another big problem we have with all of these monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats because again, they're not very stable. You get a free radical somehow introduced it's just kind of a uh it's a molecule that has one free electron and suddenly. Um, you have a chain reaction where everything goes rancid. So, yeah. an antioxidant mm-hmm. like rosemary or oregano or thyme, and rosemary is the most commercially available version now, um, will give its own hydrogen atom to the um, the glycerol to prevent the the fat from starting its chain reaction of of um, oxidizing. Now. The issue, of course, is you can only do that once and there, it's not highly concentrated. So it, it, it gives you usually like a few more weeks of shelf life in testing, uh, but not a few more months, which you would get from some of the artificial ingredients you'll find on the products that aren't formulated
1: in a quote clean way, the THBQs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. And once that oxidation stops or starts, it doesn't stop. And it can start in so many ways. So, you know, all you need is like excess sunlight, oxygen, liquid, a fluctuation in temperature. So these are conditions. It's almost like you have this like a house flower of a product. And once you go through the natural antioxidants, the process starts and it's just not going to stop. No. Nope. I mean, have you ever tasted anything
0: and you know you, you eat it and then suddenly it's extremely bitter? I and mean, part of that there are aldehydes and ketones, there's there's peroxide formed during that process. There's all kinds of off-flavors um that are produced in oxidation that are undesirable for food products. So yeah.
1: some and I ways I would say one of like the most common ways to taste that is if you have Walnuts, which oxidize extremely quickly, and once you break the um, the skin that's on the outside of the walnut that contains the nut meat itself, that has natural antioxidants in it. But once that snaps open, those oxidize so quickly, and probably most of the walnuts that are consumed in the United States are oxidized, and so that bitter, disgusting flavor that you have is what you could have in every baked good that would be using oxidized fats.
2: There's definitely different levels of oxidation that occur. Uh, As a food scientist, I basically have been overtrained on this. And so something could be a whiff of rancid and I would just... I would just know. I mean, it starts to get what we kind of call a cardboard smell, and then it really just accelerates from there. But fat, rancidity is one of the top reasons that companies actually do shelf life testing. And it's actually one of the top things that limits the shelf life of a product. So you could have a nine-month shelf life on a product because then you start to see rancidity after that. It's still safe to eat. There's nothing wrong with Rancid food, other than it won't taste the best. And some people are not sensitive to it. You know, I could have the same food as a friend and say, Oh my gosh, this is absolutely horrible. Like it's rancid. I can taste it. And they'll go, What do you mean? Like I don't think anything's wrong with this. And so it's really how sensitive people are to the rancidity. People were really warmed up to the idea of some oils being healthier than others. It was part of our conversations more on a regular day. And in entered the keto diet, which really took all of these new discoveries on the nutrition of fat and threw them out into the general public. And it's become a very popular diet. Some people swear by it. Some people swear they hated it. And, you know, it's it really focuses on the, the types of fats that you're consuming
0: yeah it's interesting because about ten years earlier, suddenly we were talking all the time about fish oil and flaxseed oil mm-hmm. and in um, whiter tones chia all the omegas yep all the omega fatty uh, omega three fatty acids because our diet has a lot of the omega sixes which is most of the oil we end up cooking with uh, most of the plant based oils have really high smoke points, great to work with. But according to nutritionists, we eat way too much of them. And so in the mid-2000s, suddenly it was omega, omega, omega,
2: increase your HDL, decrease your LDL, omega. Right. I I remember some uh, of my serial colleagues actually talking about trying to put omega- Fatty acids into the cereal to fortify them, and they basically said <laughs> everything tasted like fish. Like it was, especially the shelf life studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things oh, went rancid yeah. so quickly, and they were not palatable. Is really omega the three fatty, fatty way. acids. Yeah, wait, yeah. Wait, we're not we do having, not have shelf yeah. life. Tuna no. flakes
1: and raisins for breakfast. Mm. Mm.
0: One of the worst things I had. Somebody <laughs> brought in her friends' her friends' new company's product, and it was a snack bar with omegas, and they were not encapsulated, and it really was a crunchy, sweet, chewy snack bar that tasted like fish.
1: Right, oh, and not till yeah. the very end, like the retro mm-hmm. nasal comes out, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh. yeah.
2: yeah. So, I mean, really, I think if people want to supplement with that, they're better off just taking the, a, a pill. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's not it's not something that's easy to work into the foods, but you know, the olive oil and some of some oils tend to be a little bit higher in those. Uh, and you know, avocados become huge, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, just avocado also heat general. stable. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I do feel like it has a little bit of an off flavor when you work with same. it, though. Yeah, um, I, I agree as well. So just just keep it in your guacamole and on your toast and. Maybe out of product development.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's not cheap. And so, again, when we're thinking about product development, we are thinking about which fats can we buy? How expensive are they? Um, and what makes sense nutritionally. So, we're trying to balance yeah. all of those things as we seek out the right fat for a
2: formulation. And avocado oil, mm, a little strong there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, the type of fat you end up picking obviously has a lot of important factors, but really who your end consumer is matters. And so, if you're just trying to have an inexpensive product out there, you'll probably pick something like canola because that end consumer doesn't, it doesn't matter to them as much. But you know, a very kind of health-conscious customer who does a lot of research on these types of things avoids the actual canola oil because they know that, you know, it can be processed with hexane or acetone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some customers will only look for f- the fresh-pressed oils or virgin oils, Um which are because hard to work
0: with because, again, they have the same issues of going rancid. There's a mm-hmm. lot of things. They're not
2: purified mm-hmm. and there are a lot more compounds in there that can yeah. oxidize. I, I feel like for unsaturated fats, sunflower oil is really kind of where you net out at. And mm-hmm. it's the most popular in that the health and wellness segment. Now, using a solid oil is a lot more difficult because, I mean, you basically have butter you have coconut mm-hmm. oil and you have palm oil, and and, we'll- and there's cocoa butter, but it's so expensive, it's so expensive, it's yeah. hardly used yeah. at all. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you're I not going to
1: escape that flavor.
2: I hate to break it to people. So the melting point of coconut, or I'm sorry, not coconut, but cocoa butter is also very low. It's 92. And so I hate to break people's hearts. I shatter dreams every day when I tell them their favorite minty cookie from a scout person doesn't have any real chocolate. It's compound coating. And I feel like Most consumers don't realize that any coating on food products usually isn't real chocolate. They're using palm oil because palm oil has a higher melt point and it's more stable on shelf. And it's what we call um, compound coating. It is heartbreaking. It is. Yeah.
1: But if you're eating a sleeve and they're coming straight out of the freezer, you're not really thinking about that, are you?
2: Oh, you know, I used to do that all the time back when I didn't have dietary restrictions. And oh, yeah, I mean, they're amazing, but uh, it's, it's pretty common to use palm oil. And a lot of people, obviously with environmental aspects of palm oil, want to try to reduce it. And it's a challenge because there's not really a great substitute for it. Yeah. So it
0: is really hard. I mean, palm oil has been, I think, one of the trickiest ingredients to navigate over the last 10 years. Mm. And there are some sustainable sources, but it's hard to tell a a consumer, hey, our palm oil is really good. Here we are being transparent about it. It's actually safe and clean and sustainable. And, you know, every- paying more money for that
2: as well. Exactly,
0: exactly. And it's just difficult because in most people's minds, palm oil is the oil that kills the orangutans and- nobody wants to kill an orangutan.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot more challenges in the food system, I think, than most people realize. It has been refreshing over the last several years to have so many consumers start to feel passionately and and fight to have more accountability in the food system. Mm-hmm. But at, this, at the same time, the the science hasn't quite caught up with the tools needed to replace those items yet.
1: Well, and also, I think consumers resort to oversimplification. So even if the science is there, it's difficult to understand. And so as you're looking at a label, you want to say something is either good or bad. And as this entire podcast and the previous ones have shown, it's impossible to paint something as good or bad. You have to start thinking about the complexities involved.
2: Right. A lot of gray a
0: lot of gray. And you as an eater and a consumer have to decide for yourself what's acceptable
1: and isn't acceptable. And you vote with your dollars. Right. And as we were discussing offline, health is much the same way. So you know how your body feels when you take in certain ingredients. Somebody may feel fantastic taking in 80% of their calories from fat. And someone else might feel really sluggish. So You know, again, part of it is paying attention to how you feel and voting with your dollars.
0: Right. We're all different. All of us have different microbiome um, and, you know, we've got different genes that make us tolerant or intolerant of, of different ingredients in our diet. So part of it is you have to see for yourself
2: what's good for one person isn't good for everybody. And what was good for you 10 years ago might be something that no longer works. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, my
1: life.
0: I mean, and that's just like product development, right?
1: (laughs) That's why it keeps our jobs super interesting.
0: That's right. If you wait long enough, you'll have to reformulate everything you've ever made. (laughs) And with that, I hope you enjoyed our discussion of fat today. We hope to see you next week when we discuss... What are we going to discuss, ladies? Fiber. Oh, it's fiber time. So we will have a robust discussion of fiber and find out why it's in your food and why that matters. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Ingredient Panel. The opinions on this show are the panelists' own and not their employers. If you like what you heard today, share us with a friend. For more information about today's show and our panelists, check out theingredientpanel.com. The ingredient panel is produced by me with sound engineering and production help from Tim Matson. Music is composed by Olaf Tischbier. We are supported by Factory LLC, a food company accelerator based in historic Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. If you'd like to learn more about the factory and how we create value, visit our website, factory-llc.com. Have a great week.